0: great. I know we have a lot of uh, folks who are here with mom, grandma today, and so welcome to you. So glad that you've joined us. We're going to be jumping in. We're on the, the, oh my gosh, is this the fourth Sunday in the sermon series? Yeah, fourth Sunday in the sermon series called A Promise Fulfilled. This Sunday is one of, my, one of my favorite texts in the middle of Galatians, middle of Galatians. And if you want to just turn to the book of Galatians, we're going to be working through it a little bit, and then we're going to get to Galatians 3, 23 through 4, chapter 4, verse 7, and I just want to kind of work through it. Uh, Galatians, there was a couple summers ago where for some reason I just found myself reading Galatians over and over and over and over again, and I don't know why. I don't know why I was drawn to Galatians of all the books of the Bible, maybe partially because it's only five chapters long, you can read it pretty quickly in one sitting, um, But it was, uh, yeah. Anyway, I was just drawn to it and wanted to. I'm checking now that it's only five. It's actually six chapters long. See, I had to fact, I had to fact check myself there because you know somebody's gonna go. It's six chapters, Chad. Anyway, the sixth one's really short. Come on. Um, But I wanted to work through uh, Galatians a little bit, and I think that there's some amazing things where Paul adds a layer, a layer to what we've already been looking at of what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplishes, the promise fulfilled. Paul adds a layer to it that I, that I want to kind of drop on you this morning, I want to bring to you this morning. But I wanted to start actually with a, a, a thought-provoking phrase, a thought-provoking phrase. I'm just going to drop this phrase on you, wrestle with it for a second, and then we'll unpack it a bit. I heard this myself a while ago and still trying to unpack it, but as I read through Galatians, particularly this text, this phrase came back to mind. The phrase is, Jesus wasn't a Christian. Wrap your mind around that. Jesus wasn't a Christian. See, the truth of the matter was, at least as far as I've unpacked this somewhat strange statement, the truth of the matter was Jesus was Jewish. He was Jewish. He was a good Jewish boy. He was found in the temple. The only story we have of Jesus as a child, he's in the temple. We know that he's raised in a Jewish family. They're practicing the Jewish festivals and feast days. They're doing all of these things that Jews would do. He was presented in the temple as a child, a Jewish family. He gets himself in trouble in Luke chapter 4 because he goes to synagogue. He goes to church like a good Jewish boy And he's asked to read the Bible that day like a good Jewish boy, but then he does that whole thing where he reads the Bible and he says, all of those things Isaiah was talking about, they're fulfilled in me. And people are like, that's not supposed to happen at the scripture reading. (laughs) Most people don't say that, don't read a scripture about promises being fulfilled and say, yeah, I'm that guy that Isaiah was talking about. So Jesus was a good Jewish boy. His parents were practicing the Jewish faith, And and then... The earliest followers of Jesus were also Jewish, practicing the Jewish faith. We hear that the earliest followers were still going to the temple, still observing all the Jewish laws, rituals, festivals. They were doing all these things until until we have a problem that kind of comes up. And it's a problem that they should have or could have anticipated. And that is that Jesus told them that the message was going to start in Jerusalem. Go to Samaria, Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, who's at the ends of the earth? Non-Jewish people. And so the message starts to go out from Jerusalem, and we get this guy, the Apostle Paul, that we've talked about a little bit, and Paul, who is a Jew himself, and we looked at him last week, he, he's not just a Jew, he's like a hardcore Jew. He's like, I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm the most Jewish you could be if there ever could be most Jewishness. I win. And he said, if you remember from last week in Philippians, he said, but I'm willing to give up all of that because I found Jesus. But what's interesting is Paul takes the message of Jesus, Paul, the Jew of Jews, takes the message of Jesus to non-Jewish people, and they have to start asking themselves the questions, are we going to, and here's why I thought of this phrase, Jesus wasn't a Christian, are we going to ask these non-Jewish people, to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? This was a serious question in the early church. Because again, everyone was Jewish and they were just, they weren't trying to, Jesus himself wasn't trying to start a new religion, start a new thing. The, 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 The language, the understanding was that Jesus was fulfilling something that had already been happening. Jesus came, as we looked at last week, as a fulfillment, a completion of the law, of that way of following God. That's what Paul said in Romans last week. He was a completion, culmination, the end, the telos of the law, of that way of relating to God. But he wasn't trying to start something new. He wasn't saying, hey, here's a brand new thing. I'm the latest guru to come along. Come follow me. We're going to do a brand new thing. He was in line with Scripture and what God was doing from the beginning of the world. So the problem, though, becomes that when you have these people, these people, now the question is, what do you do with them? As I already said, what do you do with these people who are non-Jews who now want to follow Jesus? Naturally, the earliest followers of Christ started saying, well, maybe they need to become Jews. They need to convert to Judaism. That's how they'll follow Jesus. It's an interesting conundrum, something maybe you haven't thought of before. Maybe I'm the only one who loves to think about these things. One of the stickiest things that Paul gets into, is this whole issue of circumcision. If you can imagine, and maybe you don't want to imagine, especially the adult males in the room don't want to imagine, if you're an adult male and all of a sudden you say, this Jesus thing sounds like really great news, and somebody says, guess what it comes with? (laughs) Circumcision. You're probably not saying, yeah, sign me up. You're probably a little bit like, hey, I don't know about that. I'll never forget, uh, I had a student, Uh, who asked me one time, we were doing a Bible study, and of course it had to be a female student who asked me with a straight face, Chad, what's circumcision? And I didn't know what to do in that moment. So I pulled out any of the, you know, very doctor, medical-like slang that I thought I knew to describe what was happening in circumcision. And then, of course, she just laughed and said, Ha, I already knew that. I just wanted to see how you would describe it. So... (laughs) I'm imagining, I tell you that story because I'm imagining Paul and others who are Jewish-born jewish, jewish born, coming to these people and being like, hey, have you heard of this thing called circumcision? And they're like, no, we haven't. Tell us. Oh, yeah, no, thanks. Um, or, yeah, we, already, we were wondering about that. You know, this is such a serious thing that in Acts 15, they get the, the leaders of the church have to get together and they have to decide, what are we going to ask these new believers to do? What are we going to ask them to do? Circumcision, thankfully, was one of the things they did not ask them to do. But what appears to be happening in Galatians, what appears to be happening, now we're going to get to, to the Galatians text. What appears to be happening is that a group of people, a group of probably Jewish followers of Jesus from Jerusalem, came to Galatia. After Paul had already gone there and, and had seen some conversion success, so these people have given their lives to Jesus, these non-Jewish people have heard the gospel that Paul proclaims. Jesus, God in the flesh, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead. Do you want to believe that? Do you want to, as he said in the book of Romans last, last week, do you want to confess Jesus as Lord and believe Christ raised him from the dead? They said, yes, we want to believe that. We want to follow Jesus And then it appears a group from Jerusalem came after Paul and said, that's great. Do you want to be really sure about your faith? Do you want to be really sure that you're good with God? Then here's some other things you could do. You could start following the holy feast days, the festivals of the Jewish faith. And you could do this little thing called circumcision. And so Paul gets word of this, that a group has come after him And started preaching a different gospel. That's what Paul says this is, mind you. Paul says when you start adding on new rules, new things, you have to do, not just confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe Christ, raised him from the dead, but you start to add to that. You are starting to create a new gospel. That's Paul's words. 1, 6. Galatians 1, 6. Listen to Paul's words. I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's not good news at all, he says. It's not good news at all. One commentator said the Galatian Christians probably had no thought of abandoning Christ. They were not trying to abandon following Jesus, they merely wanted more security and confidence than Christ seemed to provide. The something more included showing respect for elemental spirits, which is what Paul talks about in in, in Galatians 3 and 4, following the elemental spirits of the world, observing particular holy days, accepting the necessity of circumcision, and seeking justification through Jewish law. And then I love this, he adds this at the end of this quote, just to play it safe. How many of us maybe have done that? We've accepted Christ. We start to hear some other things maybe we should be doing. I'm going to get to the difference of being and doing later on. But we start to hear some different things we should be doing, and we start to equate those doings with salvation. Just to play it safe. Just to play it safe. And you start to, when you do this, unfortunately, You start to create a picture of God where God can't really be trusted for who God is and what he's done on the cross. You start to create a picture of God where you go, I don't know that I can trust that Jesus' death and resurrection is good enough. I need to start adding some more to play it safe. And Paul says, again, I'm astonished that you're doing this. It's not the gospel. It's not good news to go back under the law. We'll get to that more later. In fact, Paul says this if you jump ahead to chapter 5. If you ju- jump ahead to chapter 5, he says this. I, I just couldn't be more succinct. He says this Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you this is chapter 5, verse 2. I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. That's pretty serious stuff. It says, if you go all the way with this, you now are relying on that to save you rather than Christ to save you. You're relying on something that you are choosing to do of your own efforts rather than Jesus' death, Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' grace. You're relying on that. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. It made me think I didn't come up with any great answers for this, but maybe think amongst amongst yourselves or think for yourself, what are those things today that we have added in, that we have said, well, maybe I should be doing this, maybe we should be doing that, maybe I need to do this, just to play it safe, just to be sure. And Paul, I think, would say to us, some of those things, if you're relying on those things, that makes it so Christ has no value to you. You're relying on those things instead of relying on Jesus, instead of saying, what God has done is enough for me." And I can't add anything to that. I think that's important. Let's keep going through this uh, Galatians text. if you want to go back to chapter two. we're going to get to our text, I promise. What actually happens Galatia is a hot mess. I'll just say that. It's a hot mess. So Paul's saying, what are you doing? I'm astonished that you're doing this. And apparently in Galatians 2, even Peter shows up. Peter, disciple of disciples, shows up. Peter, who in Acts chapter 10 has this experience where he goes to the Roman centurion's house, Cornelius's house, and God shows him that all these purity laws and unclean and clean, they're done. We're done with that. Now he, he shows Peter... Blatantly shows Peter that it's okay for the Gentiles to come to me. They can receive the Holy Spirit. It's all good. But Peter goes to Galatia. Paul says, I had to call him out to his face. Because Peter goes to Galatia and starts observing all the Jewish laws. And says, oh, I don't know that I... He goes there with some Jewish people, this Jewish contingency, and he starts observing the Jewish laws. And it shows this separation. Separation. Oh yeah, we're the Jews, so we're the ones who are really in with Jesus, and they can they can come to Jesus, but only if they do these other things. And he shows that there is still a separation, and and Paul has to call him out. Paul has to call him out in Galatians two eleven. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Can you imagine a church reading this letter? that guy, Peter? Peter and Paul were great, and they were best friends. And you're like, hey, church, we're going to read this great letter. We got it from Paul. Isn't he a great guy? When Peter came, I, I opposed him to his face for the way he was acting. Oh, so maybe there's some tension in the early church. It says, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw, this is verse 14, When Paul says, I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, in front of them all, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. So how is it then that you're forcing Gentiles to follow follow Jewish rules? So Peter, you gave up all these things that, that made you right with God because you knew the grace of Jesus Christ. And now you're putting that on these other people? Help me understand that. I share that part with you because I think I've been tempted to do that. Oh, the grace of God is so good for me, but I want to heap rules and other things on other people. I did that a lot in youth ministry. I saw it a lot, I see it a lot in youth ministry in particular. Because we're afraid for the decisions, the really dumb decisions we know kids will make. And so we try to protect, and it's all, it's kind-hearted, and it comes from a good place. But we try to do these things where like, oh, God's grace is for me. I know I'm a total mess, and I know that I need God's grace. But for you, you need to follow these rules. And that's where, unfortunately, a younger generation now looks at the church and says, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. You're telling me you haven't struggled with these things? You're telling me you aren't messing up? But then you're trying to tell us to do all these things to be perfect. And it's where we're just, it it reminds me so much of what Paul was preaching against here to the Galatians. It reminds me so much of that. Let's get to Galatians 3, 1 through 9. In Galatians 3, 1 through 9, Paul gets after him again. He says, "'You foolish Galatians! "'Who has bewitched you? "'Before your very eyes, "'Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified.' I would like to learn just one thing from you. you, He's just bawling these people out. I just want to learn one thing from you. I feel like he's talking to them like a parent, right? Like, just tell me why did you do this? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? That's a rhetorical question. Because they didn't know anything about the works of the law before these other cats came in there. So all they knew was by believing what what Paul had said to them. That's all they knew. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And Now this is really interesting. This is the part uh, why I share this section with you. He goes back to Abraham. He's doing something a little bit different than what he did. Last week, we saw him go back to Moses. This week, Paul goes back to Abraham. Verse 6, he said, "...so also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who have faith are children of Abraham." Big deal, big stinking deal for a Jewish man to be saying, "...it doesn't matter if you're a Jew to be called a son or a daughter of Abraham." Anyone who believes can now be a child of Abraham. It's a big deal, really big deal for Paul to say this to these people. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I love this. He goes back and says, Moses was given the law, but the law, and we're going to get to where where Paul interprets what the law's purpose was, but Paul here is arguing, let's go back to Abraham. Abraham's faith was built on believing and trusting God. Abraham, leave your country. Go to a distant land I will give you. Okay, Abraham does it. Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. You have the whole story of Abraham, and you have Sarah laughing like, yeah, right, I'm super old. There's no way I'm going to have a kid. But they believe, and God gives them Isaac. It's the story of faithfulness, of trusting God without knowing all these other law, parameters, all these other things. They just trust God. They have faith, and that faith is credited to Abraham as his righteousness. His belief that God will come through, God will do what God says he's going to do. That's the peace. Now Paul is saying that's the kind of faith we're living in today. Let's get back to Abrahamic faith. That's Paul's argument here in Galatians, and he takes it a little deeper. Let's go to 3:23 and 25. 3:23 and 25. So he says, "Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed." So the law was our guardian until Christ came. That we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, it's a faith through Christ, we are no longer under a guardian. No longer under a guardian. There's an interesting word here in Greek. The word is a pedagogue, a custodian, a guardian. The word is a pedagogue, which has the word teacher in it. And I was looking this up to try to understand, what is Paul really saying? That the law is a guardian. And he's not necessarily saying this in a positive sense. He's saying you are under the care of this guardian. You were locked up under the care of this guardian. You were in slavery, essentially, to this guardian. He says this, that, uh, one, one commentator says, one wonders why God bothered giving the law at all. And to answer that question, Paul describes the law as a pedagogue. Not a teacher, and this is historically what a pedagogue was, not a teacher but a slave in the family who would lead children to and from school. So pedagogues were responsible for protecting the children, but were often pictured as harsh disciplinarians, driving the kids to and from school. Maybe, again, to keep the kid's nose clean, right? We don't want you to get in trouble to and from school. Well-intentioned. But maybe that kid wanted to veer off, and the guardian would say, "Uh uh-uh, get back over here. You're outside the lines. Get over here. And he's saying that's what the law was like. This commentator continues. He says that the law was a pedagogue that confined people, kept them under restraint until Christ came. But now that Christ had come, these children had been set free. The doors are open. The final bell of the school year has rung. And why would a child want to spend summer vacation sitting in study hall? Why would a Christian want to go back to confinement under the law? Paul's saying the doors of the school are open. The pedagogues have all gone home. They're done. Go have fun. It's summer break. You're not under the law anymore. Go. And it's not have fun like do whatever you want. He's going to get to that later, what it means to live in Christ if you don't have the law to guide you. But he's saying you've been set free. Why would you want to go back Why would you want to go back? I love, I kind of glossed over it, but there in chapter three where he says, the scriptures foresaw this. Scripture saw that this was the way it was all going. That that the original plan was that all the nations would be blessed, all the people would know who God was, Everyone would have access to God. That's happened in and through the person of Christ. Let's not go back to this this thing that was the law, that was kind of a temporary, uh, we don't know what to do. God's not really sure why people won't. Let's do away with that. Jesus has come and set us free. Don't go back. Don't go back. And then he adds in 26 through 29, he he really gets after it here with them. These are some of the most amazing, these would have been some of the most radical, revolutionary words you could have heard in this early, historic context. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This would have been a big deal for those people where they're hearing, again, they're hearing, no, there is a separation between Jew and Gentile. And for us to to come together together These people are telling us that we have to do circumcision, we have to follow these holy days. And for Paul to say, stop, it's no, enough. We've been through that. For them to hear, again, hierarchical society where there's slave and free and slaves are the lowest of the low, to hear that there's not slave and free, that'll blow your mind. In this new Jesus movement, there's not slave and free, all of that is destroyed? What? We're all on equal ground? If you've ever read through the the little book of Philemon, I don't know, some of of us I think maybe just gloss over it. It's so short and doesn't seem like maybe there's that much in it. This whole thing is about Philemon who owns a slave and Paul trying to say, hey, I've got your slave with me. His name is Onesimus. He's hanging out with me. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but if you're really following Jesus, you should let him go because we don't do it that way anymore. If we're in Christ, there's no longer slave and free, Philemon. So I'm going to just give that to you, Philemon. You do what you want with that. See, we don't do the whole slave and free thing if we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The male and female thing, such a huge issue with Paul. is How, how, did, how were women treated in the early church? What did they do? He's saying there's no longer these distinctions. I think in some ways he's, he's calling back to where Peter on that first Pentecost... On that first day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down, Peter says, this is what Joel was talking about when Joel said the Spirit would be poured out on all people. Men, women, young and old would all be prophesying, this is the day we were longing for. And Paul's saying, so knock it off again with these hierarchical things. There's no Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ. It's all equal playing field. You're all children of Abraham." If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed according to the promise. And then he gets into this thing, which is the real juice of where I wanted to go today. Believe it or not, all that was an introduction. (laughs) The real juice this morning is where Paul says, "This This is not another gospel he's adding on. But he's, he's trying to say, this is the good news. This is another layer to the good news you've accepted in chapter 4, 1 through 7. He says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns technically the whole estate. See, the heir is subject to guardians, those pedagogues again, trustees until the time set by the father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery Under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. That is a strange phrase. Elemental spiritual forces of the world. We were just living by the way the world was telling us to live. And in some ways, we were enslaved to that. I think all of us can relate to that to a certain extent, feeling enslavement to just the culture that we live in and having to deal with that every day of how much am I living the way according to Christ and how much am I just living as a byproduct of the culture I live in and I've grown up in. That's a challenge. He's saying, don't be enslavement under that anymore either. Verse 4, but when the set time had fully come, and here's where he gets to it, God sent his Son born of a woman, born under the law, again, Jesus was Jewish, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We were talking in staff meeting about this little section and wondering, um, like the translation I have uses a lot of gender neutral pronouns where they'll try to do brothers and sisters or you all or his and her, that kind of a thing. And we were, we were confused, we were asking why in this section they left it as adoption to sonship and because you are his sons and didn't include adoption to like childship or something, to really gender neutralize it. And I was curious about that, and uh, this is a time where sometimes Bible footnotes aren't all that helpful, but the Bible footnote says that this is a technical, technical legal term in the Roman world, in the Greek world. And so I did some, some reading on that and found out that what would happen is that the male in the Roman household was in charge of worship. And so if, if in your Roman household you no longer had a male heir to help the family worship, you could adopt another male child from another family who would come and take on the identity of that family and be the one to lead them in worship. He would literally take the place of the deceased or the gone person to to replace them so that they could continue having worship. So so this commentator writes, In adoption, the adoptee gets a new identity. His old obligations and debts are, are wiped out, New obligations are assumed. He he becomes that other person. He becomes engulfed and embraced by this new family. Who he was before is gone. Can you hear the language of, you're not who you were. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a son of God now, a daughter of God now. That old way is gone, you now have a new identity. This is the language Paul is using, and and I think it's so easy to gloss over it and just read it and go, that's a confusing thing. But it's cool, we're child of God, yay! Yay! This is big deal stuff. Where he's saying, you know, like the Romans do, when that kid comes over and he just loses everything about who he was and becomes a new person with a new identity. That's what God is doing. That's what He's done with you. You seriously are new in Christ. You're clothed with Him. You're a brand new person. Why do you want to go back? Don't go back. Don't go back in my experience this language of adoption really really speaks to this next generation coming up because adoption in my own experience now having adopted a child adoption is is about identity and and uh, that's what i love about digging into what paul was talking about it, it really is about identity it's about identity formation I think that's the thing that's at the heart of Paul's argument here is it's about identity formation, not behavior management. You see that nuance there? It's about identity formation. If you belong to this new family, if you're in Christ, you belong to this new family. You're a part of this family. That's that's amazing. If you belong to this family, let us show you the way this family operates. So often what I heard as a kid and what we still unfortunately hear is if you do these things, you can be part of the family rather than no, come belong to the family and learn the things we do. Isn't that how we treat our own children? We try to teach them over time what it means to be a McDaniel. And as a McDaniel, we follow Jesus. We want to teach you what it means to follow Jesus. But we don't expect them to know everything about following Jesus the moment they come forth from the womb. Why are you crying? Why are you, our children lie to us. And you go like, how do they learn that? McDaniels don't lie. But you have to teach them these things. And it doesn't mean they no longer belong to the family. This adoption metaphor is huge. We've seen kids over the years when we were doing youth ministry, kids that come from no church background, parents aren't interested at all in getting them connected to church. And they come to youth group, they come to church, they start to be kind of part of our family. And we don't expect them to have it all figured out the first day, the first week, the first month they come. Heck, the first year. Some of them went off to college, and we're like, man, I still don't know if it took with that one. We spent six years of our life with that kid, and I still don't know if it took. But darn it, they belonged to the family. And whatever we could do, whatever we could do in our power to instill the the identity pieces of the Christian faith to them, we did. Because they were sons and daughters of Jesus, whether they had fully grasped that yet or not. It's an amazing metaphor that Paul says here, an amazing metaphor of adoption into the family of faith. You know, I mentioned briefly that, that we have also adopted one of our children, and it was an amazing experience. I think one of the things that, that was so amazing to me was the day one of our biological children said, do you remember when mommy was pregnant with Erko? And I was like, that's crazy. He is so part of our family, so part of who we are but there's not a sense that he never wasn't. That's the adoption metaphor here, that when you come to Christ, you become part of this family where the old is gone, the new has come, and you begin to take on this new identity of in Christ. Paul loves that phrase, in Christ. You are in Christ. You're being made new in Christ. And so it's about identity formation rather than behavior management, or as Dallas Willard said, the gospel of behavior modification. The good news is you can change all that. We could start today. Oh, the good news is Jesus has set us free from this scrambling and clawing and never, ever feeling like we measure up. But Paul says, what, so what does it look like? How would you know? This is the question. It's a fair question start to wrap up here how would you know if someone was being formed in christ because in the end our behavior does matter that's not paul would never say so what you do doesn't matter anymore he would just say what you do can't earn your salvation that's why luther martin luther loved galatians it's like i shared last week martin luther was the one who said if i could have been saved by my monkery i would have been good to go because I was the best monk there ever was, and that just left me feeling empty. Almost kill, he said, I almost killed myself through trying to practice everything possible. So what, what, though, is the behavior we could be looking for if somebody is being formed in Christ? And this is where Paul jumps ahead to the fruit of the Spirit. To the fruit of the Spirit. So if you want to know who's living in Christ... In chapter 5, he lays out the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about there's desires of the flesh, desires of the Spirit. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious, and so he lays out some things that would be out of bounds for Christians. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Why does he have to add all those things? Could a few of those things be okay, Paul? Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. You thought I was done. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, don't do those things like you did them before. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he warns them, it's not all just grace, 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 grace. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter anymore. So there's still some parameters if you're being formed in Christ. But see, I think the thing that when he gets to the fruit of the Spirit, what he's saying then, finally, what he's saying, is that you've been adopted into this, this new thing, You're a new person, Christ has set you free from that old way, so so bear fruit of the Spirit. So if you want to know, is someone in Christ, are they maturing in Christ, are they growing in their faith, are they taking on the identity of a Christian, these are the things you should see. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he says, against such things, there's no law. You can do any of those things as much as you want. Have at it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do all those things as much as you want. That's the mark of Christians. If you're being formed in Christ, show those things. Finally, One commentator said, the gospel Paul preached was not an opiate for the people. If you've heard that phrase used about Christianity before. It's not an opiate for the people, but and and I love this, an adrenaline for mission. It was an adrenaline for mission. This gospel Paul preached about being folded into the family of God, was something that just would have made these earliest believers, and maybe for you, you felt this before, maybe you need to be reminded of this, that you are on mission for Christ. And, And it's open now. We don't have to say, like, oh, well, now we're in, and there's these other people are out. That was the same thing going back then, that there's Jews, there's Greeks, there's in and they're out. No. Everyone who wants to call on the name of the Lord can be saved, can be adopted into this wonderful family we call Christianity. It's an adrenaline for mission. This commentator says the gospel moved him beyond the bounds of his Jewish heritage and into the world around him. And I leave you with this. He asks Does the gospel do any less for those who are touched by it today? Is the gospel the good news that you are full heirs, access to everything? in the kingdom of God. Is that an adrenaline for mission for you? Or an opiate for the people? Well, I guess that's nice. Or is it an adrenaline that says, oh, that more would know? That others would know? Does the good news do any less for those who are touched by it today? Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, the The truth of this that you look at us Lord and we know ourselves we know who we are and yet you look at us and say that's my son that's my daughter that's my kid God with the same love we have for our own kids our own family members Lord you look at us with that immense love knowing that there's times we're going to screw it up and yet you forgive us Knowing there's times we're going to bring joy to your face and you encourage us. God, thank you for sending your son that we might be called your children. Lord, that the old way of trying to earn it ourselves is gone. Lord, set us free. If any of us in this room have something where we're trying to earn it or we think there's something we need to cling to just to be sure, help us to let go, Lord, and trust in your faithfulness, your plan of rescuing us through Jesus. God, thank you for this message. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the way he understood these these realities of life in Christ in new and fresh ways that are new and fresh for us even today. God, be with us as we continue to worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our closing song? Amen. Just want to remind you that this week we do have uh, two memorial services here: Friday for John Kleindeen's ten a.m.; Saturday, eleven a.m. for Anna Marie Crispin. Just in case, so I want to make sure everybody has that information. Uh, that will be more information coming in the mouse calls. Uh, but please, just wanted to let you know that.